Local news now. Analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, more clouds in the sky uh, today than there was yesterday. Still a beautiful looking day here in Kamloops. We've got a jam-packed show for you. We're going to talk about uh, today's Trans Mountain decision through the perspective of First Nations groups who are interested in buying all or part of that pipeline. Uh, Whispering Pines Chief Mike Laborde, my conversation with him coming up in just a little bit. We'll also talk to BC Liberals MLA Tracy Reddies on the employer health tax issue. And we'll finish off the show uh, with our weekly discussion, as we always do on Tuesdays, with lawyer and TRU lecturer Jeffrey Meyer, talking Canadian and American politics. But first, as we do when there's a school board meeting, uh, well, pleasure to welcome to the studio the chair of the Calumet Thompson School Board, Kathleen Carpuck. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning. How are you? I'm excellent yourself. Good. So listen, we set the stage for this rather nicely yesterday, or last time we talked, last week, uh, and uh, you had a meeting last night. You guys have now set your capital priorities across eight different categories. Uh, so break this down for me. You've got new schools, you've got replacement schools, you've got additions, you've got all sorts of stuff in there. What are the priorities of this district? So when it comes to new schools, we are asking for a school up in Pineview Valley. Yep. We're asking for a new school up at Sun Peaks, mm -hmm. and we're working with the city to try and find some school lots in Juniper and Upper Aberdeen, so those will be future asks. We're asking again for an expansion at uh, Westmount Elementary, at Sahali Senior Secondary, yep. at Brock Middle School. Uh, SKSS is still on our top priority for replacement school. Yeah. We're asking for uh, three new playgrounds at three of our elementary schools. We're asking for a boiler upgrade. We're asking for dust collectors. We're asking for some money to deal with some of our old, old school buildings that are abandoned and no longer used. Yeah. And we're asking for school buses. One thing that in here, and you and I were talking about this a little off the air, but the, under the new school project category, you've got, as you mentioned, Pineview Valley and Sun Peaks, both big priorities for this district. But you also have school replacement projects, which to me was a little puzzling because to some degree, uh, you know, in SKSS, um, ideally you do not want the old building to continue. That's the old building's the problem. So that would be, in my mind, kind of like a new, any idea why there's a weird kind of differential there or no? So the difference is that new schools are dealing uh, pretty much with more population, so yeah. population pressure. And we see that up in Pineview Valley and we see that in Sun Peaks as both of those areas um, are expanding. So we have portables in elementary schools, in the case of Sun Peaks, just portables, and we need to actually have a brick and mortar school in those two areas so yeah. that we can deal with those population pressures. With SKSS, we have a school that is structurally sound. It's not ideal for our current classrooms that we need to have for modern you know, teaching. Uh, the Wi-Fi is not great. There's connectivity problems. Um, a modern school would be much nicer to have, but then you compare that to seismic problems that they have down at the coast, and what you're really dealing with is a safety issue when it comes right. to replacement schools. When you look at this new school list, um, any idea, I mean, again, kind of the twist here, and you and I talked about it last week, for people who don't know, in the years previous, you would submit a top five list, and that was it. I mean, you just have your five big projects, and we'd go off to the races to see what, if any of them would have, 
you know, get a green light. And in the case of last year, of course, was Valley View. Now you have eight different categories, new schools, expanded schools, school replacement, rural district programs, school bus, uh, all this kind of stuff. Any idea how this is now going to proceed? I mean, are you going to see some of these, all of these? Are you going to see multiples go forward? Any idea in a timeline? Because you obviously have some projects. Like, for example, Sun Peaks is a big priority. This new school in Pineview Valley is a big priority. But at the same time, you want to deal with South Cam. You want to get that uh, that uh, big expansion in West Mountain done. Any idea if you could see you know, one, two, three of those projects and then the school buses and things like that all happen? Or what's your sense? So usually we get funding for school buses and dust collectors every year. Yeah. Those are things that happen on a fairly regular basis. And in the grand scheme of things, they're small monetary items for the ministry to fund. So they're not so expensive. A replacement school for SKSS is almost $60, or $60 million. It's a pretty big ask in terms yes. of their overall budget. When we're able to break them out into smaller categories, the ministry may say, well, you know what? We funded all these schools down at the coast for seismic. There's a limited number of people that can actually deal with that in terms of contractors to actually do those upgrades. We have X amount of dollars left over. We can fund expansions. And so this gives us more flexibility and more of a chance of actually getting an addition on a school rather than just having one overall priority. The other interesting part of that, and you talked about it a minute ago, was working with the city on sites for new schools. Now, they're not on the list here because you don't have a site to build a new school on, but I, one would think that that would then pop up, whether it's next year or the years after that. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Where are you looking for new sites? Where's the priority there for future new schools that aren't you know, maybe on the list right now? So based on the Kamloops official community plan, which we took a good look at a couple of, uh, oh, almost two months ago now, we really saw where the city is forecasting growth and what type of growth. And what they've told us is that there's going to be a lot of single family residences put up in Juniper. There's going to be a ton of them in Upper Aberdeen. And so those then become much more higher priorities for us that we'll be looking at those areas to find somewhere where we could potentially put schools in. In your mind, from the perspective of where you are now, is this an example of how to work with the city to ensure that um, that, that kind of planning is being done and that when they build these new neighborhoods, there will be a school there or the potential for a school at some point to feed the need? Or are we behind the eight ball a little bit? How, Process-wise, how are you seeing that? Is it, a, is it a good case or is it a case where there's some, um, some need for improvement? This is something that we have been in the conversation with the city for a while, but because we've moved from a period of decline enrollment to flipping the switch almost overnight and going to increased enrollment and in new areas of the city where we don't have schools, this has definitely upped the pressure for us. And so it meant that it means that we've been having a lot more conversations with the city about, about this. Um, on back to the capital priority list. Now you've hammered this all out. What happens now? I assume, I assume this information is then forwarded to the, to the Ministry of Education. Uh, any idea on what a usual timeline is to hear back on some of this stuff, even if it's a no? So we'll, um, deadline for the submissions is the 30th of June. Yeah. Uh, we expect that we'll probably be hearing about dust collectors and buses sometime next year along with the playgrounds. Um, that's part of the new playground fund that the ministry's introduced. Um, as for a new school or an expansion, 
fingers crossed that we may be able to do a project definition report on something which would mean that it would definitely be on the capital list for future funding. Interesting. Uh, you guys have one more board meeting before a new school year. Uh, anything of interest or note coming up next week or no? Uh, we're going to be looking at a few more BAA courses. We'll finally hopefully be through grad season so we can have <laughs> a final report on that. And uh, other than that, we're getting ready just to wrap up the year, and then we'll start focusing in on September. Excellent. Um, there's an interesting proposal in Chase. I think you guys kind of deferred it a bit yesterday, but um, I believe it's an outdoor school or an outdoor school. But tell me a little bit about that, and, and why did you kind of say, okay, listen, we can't make a decision on this right now? So we had a parent group present to us when we were in Chase at our last meeting, and uh, they would like the district to do a feasibility study on an outdoor school, which means that 80 to 90% of the learning would actually take place outside. Mm. And obviously that has its own ramifications around shelter during inclement weather and, uh, <laughs> and you know, winter. cold weather <laughs> and um, first aid and some of those things. And uh, what we said uh, to the parents is we need more information as to what you want because they gave us several different options that they were looking at. We've asked them to narrow it down. Once we get some feedback from them, then the board will uh, make a decision on whether or not to go ahead with the feasibility study. Uh, before I let you go, Sagebrush Theatre, any, anything new there or no? Uh, we awarded the contract to ANT Construction. And uh, the timeline is approximately when they get started, about 12 weeks. So 12 weeks. So June, we're getting into the end of June. So let's see, July, August, and then what, tail end of September? We're looking at the tail end of September. Possibly October? Okay, interesting. Uh, does that timeline, I mean, obviously the work's got to get done. The timeline just is going to be the timeline, yeah? Yep. Yeah. So okay. uh, we're hoping that uh, we don't have any surprises and that things go according to plan and that uh, Sagebrush is reopening in September. How much of a, a pain in the butt has this whole thing been? I, I mean, we talked a lot to Western Canada Theatre Company and obviously they are uh, putting up with some headaches and some logistical frustration. For, from your guys' perspective, has this been, I mean, obviously not something you want to have happen, but has been an, an interesting sort of educational experience or, or no? It's definitely been a challenge for us. Um, we've had to relocate our young people's concerts, uh, find an alternate location for them. Uh, the school district does use that theater about a hundred times a year. Mm. So bookings during the day for various events, it's definitely impacted the ability for uh, KSA and SKSS drama classes to use that. Uh, they very often use it for end of year productions and other things. So it's, it's definitely had an impact on the district not having that available to us. Interesting. Kathleen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That's Kamloops School Board Chair Kathleen Carpock. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk Trans Mountain with Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com.
Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, we're waiting for word from the federal government today whether they're going to say yes, no, or maybe so to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. One of the interesting aspects of the pipeline story is First Nations groups are looking to buy all or part of the pipeline. I had a chance to talk to Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde, who's making his way back to Kamloops after meetings in Ottawa on just that topic. Let's take a listen. You are in Calgary en route back to Kamloops from a trip to Ottawa where you... Uh, did some work on the pipeline front. I understand you had some time even with the finance minister, Bill Morneau. Um, what's going on on the effort to, to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline from the, from the First Nations group that, uh, that you're working with? What's, what's the latest? Well, we, we were invited to Ottawa to meet with uh, the staff and the minister. And so that was, we met with the minister very briefly yesterday. Uh, we met, uh, spent a lot of time with his uh, chief of staff and some of his other staff there too. They were um, just sharing with us uh, what they expect to go on. Well, um, they didn't know if the decision was uh, going to be affirmative or negative or if it was going to be uh, put off. And so they were very careful to have us understand that they weren't uh, saying anything yesterday. They're playing their cards very close to their vest, but they were sharing with us that um, First Nations participation in the pipeline expansion will be a priority for them. You guys, as I understand it, uh, just when we were chatting off the air, have actually now tabled an offer. Uh, I don't know what kind of detail you can give me on that, Mike, but is it for all or, or part of the pipeline? Well, we well, this is what uh, we were talking. We've always told the shared with the finance minister what we wanted um, uh, and how it seems now is what they're going to do is they're going to build a pipe first. If it's a positive vote by cabinet, they're going to build a pipe first and then they're going to have uh, a certain structure offered to the First Nations, a certain percentage, and then we can buy on top of that percentage. But I need to go back with my, I had my TD guys there, Toronto Dominion guys there, and we discussed it after, like what would happen if it's an affirmative vote and we get this much, and how do we include the other folks along the line that are not necessarily uh, along the line? How do we invite them in, and how do we get to uh, as much as we can? And so those are the conversations I had with uh, our finances yesterday after the meeting with the Minister of Finance. I know from our past conversations, Mike, you were eager to try and get the offer in and hopefully a deal done before uh, this fall silly season arrives, the federal election. Uh, what is... What does this sort of do for that timeline as we sit today? Well, um, what it does, it, it just gives us um, a better working venue. We, we understand now that uh, if it's an affirmative vote, then we have two years to um, have people understand how the pipeline share structure is going to work. And so for, it has some positives and it has some negatives. Certainly, I would have liked to put this one to bed before the election, but that doesn't seem to be the case. And so what we'll be doing is uh, sharing with the, the communities along the pipe and those that are interested in, in working with the Western Indigenous group on how to get this done. Any fear from your end that if there's a change of government, whether you know it's the Conservatives or whomever, uh, but it's not Mr. Trudeau, that this could change the dynamic of this particular deal or no? Well, no, I don't think so. I think um, both parties want this pipeline to go ahead because it's crucial for Alberta resources and, and, and just Canadian resources in general. Send a message out to Canada that uh, we're open for business. And it also will include First Nations 
but this will be uh, a way of doing infrastructure projects in the future. Do you see any situation today, Mike, where the, the federal government says no instead of yes? I mean, I personally think it's slim and none, but uh, you're from your perspective? Well, uh, there's three possible answers, yes, no, or maybe, right? And so if it's yes, it's just what we're going to do, what I just said. If it's no, I still want to buy it. Like, I keep seeing these people, oh, it's not worth anything. Well, good, sell it to me for a dollar. And we'll see how fast it's worth something. <laughs> and, um, you know, those kind of, those silly things to say. And then if it's uh, maybe, um, then we'll have to regroup and talk to our investors there because we all know that the longer you delay something, the more expensive it gets. With the scenario you put in front of me where they build the pipeline first and sell it later, does that provide... Um, I don't know if insurances is the right word, but I mean, the construction phase, uh, when they get in the lower mainland, is going to be a little contentious. There's going to be some issues down there. Is it easier to, to buy it after the fact and then not be involved with any of that or no? I guess that's what they're, that's what they're thinking. Is. Um, that's probably what I would, would say, too. Um, but, but for us, it's just that we wanted to purchase the, the pipe up front because it's cheaper to buy it before it's built than it is after yeah okay uh while i have you on the phone the land titles office i mean last time i chatted you were you were chatting with a lawyer and, and looking at options there any developments on that front or no no it's 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 it's, it's crazy crazy silence right doug donaldson talks to everybody but uh and my lawyer was you know he was uh working on some correspondence with those guys you know it's much like uh, closing the barn door after the horses have fled so i don't know what's going to go on we have other issues with doug donaldson um, and, you know, the license transfers with uh, Interfor and Coco and now West Fraser, all those guys shutting their mills down. Uh, we want to know what happens to their forest licenses. Yeah, on the land titles office, though, are you still set on <clears throat> launching some kind of legal action there, Mike, or no? I don't know. I'll have to talk to George when I get back. He's my, he's my lawyer. Okay. On the forest tenure thing, I, I know that uh, Simp First Nation up in the Vavenby deal is is none too happy. They're totally opposed to it. What's what's your take as we see some of these mills shut down and these tenures potentially hit the block? Well, that's just it. I mean, a license is exactly that. It's a license to harvest wood in a manner that's environmentally friendly and you know respects First Nations and stuff like that. It's not an asset to be sold. It's not a part of your asset balance sheet. And so this is what the licensees have to understand. The, the license belongs to the province. And so um, they're just a, it's a license to cut wood. And so what these guys are doing, I mean, they're trading these licenses like it's, um, like it's theirs. But uh, it, it's strange to us that this occurs. And so this is what we want to have those conversations with those guys about because, you know, we have... Um, been neglected when it comes to forest practices and those kinds of things and so you lead to these you know massive forest fires and stuff like that because uh the licensees have been mismanaging and uh not putting their forest stewardship plans that benefits the forest only benefits them and so this whole license system where they're trying to trade it to another licensee is not on with us. It's not on with Simpkin. It's not on with Whisper and Pines either. 
Bill 22 provincially, which is brand spanking new, offers some kind of silver lining there from your perspective, I'd assume. It, it mandates public consultation, not only with First Nations, with community, with unions, all that kind of jazz. Although we haven't seen this thing in action yet, is that provide some assurances for you that you have some recourse here or no? No, I, we haven't had any input into that Bill 22, so I don't have any faith in it. It does give the minister a veto, though, at the end of the day. I mean, this, uh, in Vavenby case, Canfor is going to have to put a package together that says, listen, we talked to all the groups, including First Nations, we've consulted, we've done all this stuff, here's our proposal to sell the tenure, and the minister has the right then, Mike, to have a veto. In your mind, should Donaldson use that muscle or no? Well, yeah, he should definitely use that muscle, and we should engage with Simp and all of the rest of us that live in the valley there. So that's what should happen. We're part of the landscape, too. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, appreciate the time, as always. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. That was Whispering Pines First Nation Chief Mike Laborde discussing a number of interesting topics, including the Trans Mountain Pipeline. His group of First Nations has now tabled an offer to buy all or part of that pipeline. But as you heard there, it looks like it's going to be a bit of a wait depending on what the federal government decides today. And they're going to decide, the Trudeau government's going to decide if it's going to be a yes, a no, or a maybe so on the pipeline. We'll keep you up to date on that. Quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we're going to talk to BC Liberals MLA Tracy Reddy's. The topic is the employer health tax. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to welcome the program this morning. The BC Liberals MLA for Surrey White Rock. Also the opposition finance critic, Tracy Reddys. Good morning, Tracy. How are you? Hi, Shane. Nice to hear from you. Yeah, nice to, nice to have you on the show. Uh, the topic we're discussing is the employer health tax. As we know, this came in at the beginning of January. Uh, however, uh, of note, because in Jaws of June 15th, the first installment of this thing has to be paid. It's going to be paid in four quarterly payments. Um, you guys don't like this thing too much. In your mind, Tracy, what, what tweaks or changes would you make to the employer health tax to make it more palatable? Well, um, firstly, I think this is a, a badly flawed tax that is going to create uh, disincentives for growth. It's going to uh, result in consumer prices rising, and um, uh, you know it will likely reduce employee wages and benefits, and and also create disincentives for employers to create jobs. So, you know, I think the the tax is is uh, basically flawed, and and the minister of finance needs to go back to the drawing board on this uh, because it's uh, as, as it stands. It's, it's certainly not uh, going to work for businesses in British Columbia. But the medical services premium is also a deeply flawed tax, a much hated tax in this province. Uh, something needed to be done. I believe your party promised to make some changes there as well. What would you like to see in order to replace uh, the much maligned MSP then? Well, first off, uh, the um, former government, uh, the B.C. Liberals, uh, did say they were going to eliminate the tax um, when the uh, economic uh, growth of the province allowed it. And uh, instead of uh, playing a shell game uh, by passing $1.9 billion of the $2.6 billion MSP uh, premiums to businesses, the idea was to completely eliminate $2.6 billion in taxes. And I think that's where, uh, where the government should have gone. Uh, you know, BC is already suffering from a competitiveness problem. And, uh, uh, you know, when you look to our neighbor to the east, uh, there's no EHT, there's no PST, there's no carbon tax, 
that uh, Alberta is planning to lower corporate taxes. So, so this this type of tax, which is really a tax on payroll and not not even on profit, uh, really doesn't uh, doesn't make sense. But further to the east, uh, payroll health taxes are not uncommon. It is in other provinces, including the biggest one, Ontario. Yeah, it, it, that's fair enough. But I think the problem in BC today, and then this is something that we have been saying, I think since. Uh, September 2017, when the uh, current government introduced the uh, uh, higher uh, corporate tax. The pro- problem we have is it's not just one tax, it's the plethora of uh, taxes that are hitting businesses in this province. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, uh, the taxes are growing by about $13.5 billion under the NDP government, and uh, probably about sev- 60 to 70 percent of that is being borne by businesses. And when you, uh, again, look at uh, um, things like capital, um, people are mobile. Uh, this creates, um, uh, you know, situations where companies will actually leave the province. And in fact, we've already heard of, uh, of a number of businesses in Kelowna and uh, in the north who um, have uh, businesses in both provinces, and they're looking to move their head office, even though they've been in the province for 50 years. Uh, and that's because the competitive situation, the tax situation in BC, just makes no sense for them. Your party highlighted a concern from a Kelowna area businessman who I actually thought uh, raised a pretty alarming point, and uh, I won't I won't kind of dive into details on, on the business and stuff. But essentially, we have a Kelowna area businessman runs a business. He employs people out of province, bids on contracts out of province, and for some reason, the employer health tax here in BC applies to all his workers, be they in a project in Quebec, Ontario, Alberta. Uh, and he's got to shell out that money regardless of where his workers and where his projects are. I thought that was an interesting and, and perhaps concerning point. Your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that just shows how much of a tax grab this is. I mean, we're not talking about uh, uh, financing medical services for people outside of, of the province. This is just a pure and simple tax grab. And, uh, and again, it puts that business um, and a number of businesses who are in similar uh, similar like uh, categories uh, into a, a very competitive disadvantage with uh, their uh, competitors in these other provinces. So, um, you know, I think, uh, again, that the tax, the, the, the government really is certainly uh, not friendly uh, as far as business is concerned. And, you know, I think they've forgotten that, you know, the majority of jobs are created by employers in the private sector. And uh, if we don't have a competitive um, uh, tax regime, uh, then we can lose those businesses and jobs and ultimately tax revenues to uh, other jurisdictions that are a lot more friendly. Uh, you guys are obviously in opposition, not in government, so you don't have any real power to do anything about this. But we have some concerns about the tax. One I just talked about that it applies mm-hmm. to workers outside of provinces for companies that are inside of BC. Uh, I know the BC Chamber of Commerce has floated the idea of raising some of the thresholds. There are certain uh, earning thresholds that mean that a business would have to pay a certain amount based on what their payroll is. Uh, he would like the BC Chamber would like to see a raise to one and a half million dollars in order to free up mm-hmm. some, some money for small businesses. Uh, what kind of changes would you like to see the government make here if you could, you know, maybe, you know, pressure them to make changes? Well, I think if the government's not going to go back and uh, back to the drawing board uh, completely, then uh, raising the thresholds uh, significantly makes a lot of sense. I mean, under the current regime, uh, according to the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, it's not 15% of British Columbian businesses that are being affected. It's 44%. And on average, they'll be, they're, they're relatively small businesses uh, with payrolls of just uh, slightly over half a, a million dollars. 
and uh, they're going to be paying, uh, you know, roughly about fifteen thousand dollars on average. And for you know, for small business owners, fifteen thousand dollars is a lot of money. Uh, I was talking with somebody with the um, uh, uh, liquor uh, uh, retailing industry and uh, talking about a, um, you know, the average um, uh, financial position of a of a pub. Uh, that makes two million in revenues. Well, typically they only make about hundred thousand dollars in profits. Um, if they have to pay um, uh, uh, payroll tax, which typically would uh, be paid because uh, the payrolls would average around twenty five percent, that's fifteen thousand dollars less uh, less profit, and that's a significant amount if, you, if the business is only making a uh, hundred thousand dollars. So, so the thresholds need to need to be increased and. Um, uh, I think these these uh, situations which um, create competitive disadvantage for British Columbia companies with their head offices here in BC need to be immediately addressed or else again the government um, is uh, facing job losses to uh, other provinces. Tracy always a pleasure thanks so much for taking some time this morning. So nice to talk to you Shane have a, have a great day. You as well. That's Sorry right, White Rock BC Liberal MLA and the opposition finance critic talking about her party's overall dislike of the employer health tax and some tweaks that uh, they would like to see the government make there. We'll take a quick break and on the other side we'll talk American and Canadian politics with Jeffrey Myers. Local news now. Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in as we talk to every single Tuesday on the show. Pleasure to be joined on the program by Thompson Rivers University lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Oh, good morning, Shane. I'm well. Good. Um, let's start. Uh, we always talk politics and, and Trump eats up a lot of that. We'll certainly t- touch on Mr. Trump, but... Uh, you and I have talked about this before, this Bill C-21 in Quebec, which uh, basically forbids uh, government employees, etc., from wearing sort of religious symbols and sparked a bit of a firestorm. Well, uh, late uh, late last night, uh, Bill C-21 passed in Quebec. Uh, what do you think? Um, well, I mean, I think I used it as a, as a fact pattern for my students on their, um, on their constitutional law exam this year. And, and the way I asked them to analyze it was I said, look, Let's assume that uh, the Quebec doesn't invoke the notwithstanding clause, which would insulate it uh, from, uh, at least in part, from chart review under the charter, which guarantees uh, Canadians' basic civil rights. And I said, and and they came up with all kinds of ways in which the uh, draft legislation at the time, which is largely similar to what was passed last night, would indeed uh, violate the um, charter's guaranteed right of um, freedom of expression, uh, sort of freedom of religion and freedom of consciousness under Section 2A of the Charter and wouldn't be justifiable under Section 1, which permits under certain circumstances, um, you know, for charter rights to be violated where the greater interest in a free and democratic society is to do so and the balance is proportionate. Because of invoking Section 33, which is the notwithstanding clause, this means that anybody who attempts to um, contest this litigation or whose rights are violated by it will be sort of forced back into the position um, somebody would have been in uh, 1981, which is the year before the Charter was patriated, whereby the only way to sort of mount an attack on a violation of your civil liberties by a province would be through that province's um, Human Rights Act, or simply to make arguments that uh, it's a a division of power or federalism arguments that the power being, the, the act being undertaken by the provincial government, in this case Quebec, was outside of its value 
appellate jurisdiction. And in this case, those are going to be much, much harder um, uh, arguments to make, and it really takes important um, uh, arrows out of the quiver of uh, those who would fight for um, religious freedom and religious liberty and equality uh, uh, uniformly all over Canada. Now, you could make the pretty good argument this is aimed at Muslims, but I mean, it, it prevents, mm-hmm. you know, Jewish people from, from wearing things that are associated with their religion. I mean, it, it goes across a lot of different things here. Well, the, the legislation is based on uh, this principle, um, which is an old principle. It's really been around since the French Revolution, and that is the principle of, and there's no real English translation for the word. The French word is laïcité. It's sometimes translated loosely into English to mean secularism. But what um, the way in which uh, this concept of laïcité or secularism, if you will, has been interpreted in Quebec, much like how it's been interpreted in contemporary France, is very different from uh, the way in which uh, we imagine um, religious freedom. Uh, we imagine, um, you know, in, 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 in the, most of the Anglo-American world, and this is true in the U.S. and it's true in Canada, as, as religious freedom is meaning certainly that the, there is a kind of neutrality um, of the state and that the state doesn't establish any kind of particular uh, religion and that people have the freedom to practice and express themselves in the ways they want as long as those rights don't significantly interfere with other people. Uh, the way in which uh, the kind of robust reading of laïcité has taken shape in contemporary France and now been, and over the last 10 or 15 years, sort of imported into the political culture in Quebec is such that you have to have a kind of stringent um, uh, secular, um, non-religious face of the state going so far as to require the removal of all um, outward signs of religion. Uh, uh, and the rationality behind it is that that's to send the message that the state doesn't endorse any particular religion. Okay, so that that has been then uh, any outward signs of religion. So that includes the niqab, the hijab, so that's a full facial covering or partial or hair covering for Muslim women includes turbans and the carrying of kirpans for Sikh men, includes the words of yarmulkes, uh, for Jewish men, and even the wearing of crucifixes uh, for Christians. Now, one of the things that my students wrote on their test and that I was glad to see that they picked up was, um, in a way, this is what we call, uh, by the legal term, it's, it's colorable. That means the, lo- the law is saying it's doing one thing, but the external evidence of public statements and public debate and the surrounding historical circumstances suggest that it's doing another, right? So the law is formally equal in its discrimination, if you will. Nobody can wear a religious uh, symbols, regardless of what group you are, even if you're in the dominant um, Catholic group or if you're in... Um, Uh, any religious group whatsoever. Um, But the evidence suggests that this has largely been motivated by um, Islamophobia and that those practitioners of other religion are almost caught up in the crossfire. We know certainly with Sikhs, for example, who wear turbans in the days after 9-11, and there there were cases where they were um, targeted by ignorant people who thought they were Muslims. There's a lot of confusion um, I think that people have in this bill is doing nothing to assist it. And of course, many Christians uh, don't wear crucifixes and they can easily tuck them into their shirt. Um, you know, many Jews don't wear yarmulke, but many do. And there is significant anti-Semitism as well as a- uh, Islamophobia in Quebec. But this is sort of designed to and a part of a reaction to a broader kind of form of, uh, I think, Islamophobia, which has been manifest, you know, throughout the West. And we talked last week about 
how some of these same tensions led to the growth of far-right nationalism in the U.S. and in um, the U.K. and also in, in Europe, in Central, Western, and Eastern Europe, right? And, th- th- this, and all coming and stemming from, in part, the kind of sea change in the, in, in the view of liberal multiculturalism that occurred in some quarters and was exploited by populist politicians after 9-11. So this is the Quebec version of that, and I think it's, uh, it's reason to, alar- to be alarmed and it's also important to remember that the notwithstanding clause, which is included in the Constitution as a sort of compromise a provision that was required in order for uh, Mr. Trudeau to get the assent of the other premiers uh, to um, patriation of the charter, is a provision that's been it's been used I think eight times before this in the history of Canada, and it's um, and there's a concern that its usage here. Um, in particular, is um, is going to be a sign of its further kind of normalization of its usefulness and its use of use in more explosive um, kind of uh, social uh, and political circumstances than perhaps it had been used in the past. And again, with threats to use it, for example, from Ontario and from Quebec, um, there's also the possibility of a kind of concerns around splintering of the federal the federation and inequal or um, uh, unsuccessful applications of the charter, uneven applications of the charter across the country. So it opens up some very serious Canadians for Can- uh, issues for Canadians, particularly as we go into the election in the fall. Let's move south of the border, Jeff. Uh, Mr. Trump, as this is want, uh, can say anything at any given time, and certainly did that in the last week. Uh, we're all aware of uh, one of the foundation parts of the Mueller report, of course, was the, the leak through WikiLeaks of all of the GOP emails, especially on Hillary Clinton, uh, yada, yada, yada. We fast forward to last week and Mr. Trump was asked a question about uh, whether he would accept dirt from a foreign power about an, a political opponent and would he or, or would he not tell the FBI? And he said, no, I would not. I'd accept it. Why wouldn't I accept it? Why would I tell the FBI? That lit up a firestorm under some pretty fierce criticism. He pulled a pretty fast U-turn then saying, hey, listen, I would definitely report it to the FBI. And by the way, uh, just so we're factual here, that uh, is mandated by U.S. law. You must report something like that to the FBI. What did you make of all that? Well, I mean, there's a famous historical anecdote which often gets told in this context, and that is um, in the uh, 2000, the contested 2000 election, the um, <clears throat> the I believe it was the the Gore campaign received a copy of the briefing book uh, by the Bush campaign that was designed to prepare uh, Mr. Bush, uh, then Governor Bush, for his first debate with uh, then Vice President Gore. Um, And this wasn't necessarily a matter of national security or anything like that, but the Gore campaign immediately turned, uh, alerted the authorities and turned that briefing book around without looking at it. So it gives you an idea of what... um, the best practice is. And in, in most cases, um, you know, this type of thing hasn't had to sort of spill out into uh, the public in this way. But here, obviously, um, we have, uh, we're talking not about even a rival campaign, we're talking about a foreign power. And remember, you know, when we talking about the Mueller report, although the Mueller report was not able to conclude that there had been a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and um, Russia uh, to subvert or undermine the election, there was no doubt whatsoever uh, that along with the conclusion of the U.S. intelligence agencies that Mr. Mueller also concluded that the Russian uh, government did sought to and did indeed succeed in uh, interfering in the U.S. election and that they, although they couldn't show a kind of coordination, planning and deliberation uh, sufficient to rise to the level 
uh, that would be needed for a criminal charge of conspiracy, it was very clear that the Russian government had sort of wanted to assist the Trump campaign and that the Trump campaign, if not Mr. Trump himself, at least at lower levels and some levels quite close to him, had sort of been open to that. And so I think what this revealed is that there are certain um, problems in the U.S. law in that the requirement of knowledge and that the requirement of intent in some of these conspiracy rules is so strong that it allows somebody who's sort of willfully ignorant or, you know, just has some kind of plausible denial uh, to um, be free from charges uh, of this regard. And so that's uh, what happened. But one of the reasons that Mr. Mueller reappeared in front of the public a few weeks after delivering the port was just to remind people that although he, he didn't think there was sufficient evidence for conspiracy charges, that there was no question that there had been Russian interference, right? So I think the way in which um, Mr. Trump read the report, I should say probably understood the report through the lens of the media commentary and his lawyers, because I highly doubt he actually uh, took the time to read it, was to say that just being open to and willing to accept an offer of some quote-unquote dirt from foreign power wasn't in itself its problem unless you had actively solicited and sort of participated uh, in getting it, and that could be proved beyond a reasonable doubt. So he's really, you know, he's just as he's refused, you know, just as he said, this is over now, he's not going to... Um, do anything but take this strongest uh, position possible. So I think there might be a need for changes to the law, but certainly the law as it exists now, I think in terms of that kind of statement, it, it sort of reopens the whole thing and suggests um, once again that each time a different type of statement is made or in a different context, it reopens the possibility uh, that there is some kind of conspiracy. It reopens the possibility of prosecution. It's also important to remember that this was in direct contradiction to what the head of the FBI, who had been appointed by Mr. Mr. Trump had advised. Um, and so, you know, but this has been an ongoing kind of thing with undermining, you know, U.S. law enforcement agencies. So none of it's really surprising. Um, I'm not sure that this would necessarily raise to the level of conspiracy. I think we need to look at federal conspiracy laws to determine whether they're sufficiently protecting the American electoral system from kind of people who are just very, very cavalier about these things, as opposed to engaged in kind of, you know, very carefully planned conspiracies. But as things stand now, Mr. Trump clearly reads the law uh, to give him an absolute carte blanche, and that is very scary. On the legal battle between Congress and the White House, uh, we had some pretty serious developments last week. Uh, the House voted on Tuesday to authorize the Judiciary Committee to go to court to enforce subpoenas. They want to compel mm -hmm. people like Attorney General William Barr, former White House counsel Don McGahn, to, uh, yeah. to of course, provide some witness testimony. Uh, and they also, the next day on Wednesday, uh, the House Judiciary Committee voted to hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt of Congress. Uh, this mm -hmm. kind of further intensifies what's been a, a bit of a boiling showdown between the White House and Congress itself. What, what do you make of all that? Well, I mean, what I make of it is, again, like I said last week, I mean, the, the position of the Trump administration now is basically that it's not going to comply with any subpoenas whatsoever. Um, and that it's going to sort of blanket claim uh, executive privilege. And so, um, you know, and, and the question is whether, and, and that's a very aggressive uh, position. Now, there are times when in the past, you know, um, you know, uh, ex members of the of the executive branch have complied with subpoenas, but um, you know, been careful about how they answer questions. But to outright refuse any oversight jurisdiction, I think, is clearly in violation of the Constitution. And uh, and again, this will likely go all the way to the Supreme Court. But again, because of the 
partisan composition of the Supreme Court and the power of the presidency and the expansive power of the presidency has been recognized more and more over the last 20 years, there is a risk that will be upheld. There's also a risk that will take some time, and, this, and the review and the need to do judicial review on all of these subpoena applications will slow down the process significantly. Um, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, uh, when you talk about things like executive privilege, um, one thing that can be done is, is that, and this is going to be done, is that Congress can go after people who, you know, aren't, weren't a part of the administration, who are just a part of, for example, like Donald Trump Jr., who are part of the campaign. The executive privilege shouldn't and doesn't extend there. Um, and then, but again, with Don McGahn would have been a crucial person. Uh, Bob Barr would have been a crucial person. Those people are under significant pressure um, not to assist. And um, this matter will be litigated all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, where uh, people like um, Neil Gorsuch and, uh, and Brett Kavanaugh, whose appointment was assisted along by the Trump administration or made by the Trump administration in, in no small part by the advice and uh, work of somebody like Don McGahn are going to be potentially stymied. And that does present an unbelievable crisis for the U.S. Uh, constitutional system and its division of powers. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if you know, I, I don't. Uh, have we ever had a time before where the Attorney General of the United States was found in contempt by the legislative branch? Well, I think that, uh, you know, t t I think that Eric Holder, even in the, um, believe it or not, Eric Holder, if memory serves correctly, in the, remember there was a, con there was a question of, um, uh, it was called Fast and Furious, and it was a scandal uh, regarding illegal exports of firearms. And I and I think he asserted executive privilege, and um, and the Congress tried to hold him in contempt. Um, I think that that's not you know totally unheard of in the last few years. Again, whether it's under the Obama administration or under the Bush administration, the executive power has increasingly expanded, uh, and there have been uh, and and it has been increasingly difficult to exercise oversight. So it's not this the, the fall for this doesn't lie single-handedly at the feet of the Trump administration, but it's really the blanket. The blanket, um, the blanket refusal um, of anybody to sort of appear um, on behalf of the subpoenas. And I think, you know, in this case, unlike in the Fast and the Furious case, I mean, the basis for the subpoena is, is rich in fact. I just did a quick look while you were talking here. June 20, mm -hmm. 2012, the Oversight yeah. Committee held long to hold older, holder in contempt of Congress for not releasing documents. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Kellyanne Conway, who's a, a pretty divisive figure and um, maybe Marvel, um, you know, equals Trump and kind of saying things that are, are just unbelievably wildly untrue. Um, mm -hmm. The special counsel's office uh, says she should be fired for violations of the Hatch Act. Uh, what's your mm -hmm. read on that thing? Um, well, I mean, the, the difficulty with, you know, um, you know, the Hatch Act involves, um, you know, sort of mixing um, personal and um, uh, you know, private or business interests with, um, you know, your political office or mixing, for example, um, you know, campaign, uh, campaign functionalities with uh, governance functionalities. Now, the vice president and the president themselves are not subject to the Hatch Act because if they were, it would be impossible to, for them to really campaign while they're in office. But as much as possible, um, you know, the people who work for the government, who work for the administration are supposed to carry on the people's um, you know, business without sort of using their positions to their advantage. Now, obviously, a lot of things occur in a kind of gray area when it comes to the Hatch Act, but as you exactly stated, I mean, when you think of somebody like, um, you know, like her, this is a situation where 
Um, this has been so unbelievable, making comments about, you know, buying Ivanka's products um, and making sort of blatant um, political comments that are just um, false, right? And so what the Hatch Act is, it, go, it dates all the way back to... Um, 1939, right? And it was called an act to, it was named after Senator Hatch who sponsored it, but it was an act to prevent pernicious political activities. Uh, and what it does is it stops uh, employees from the executive branch of the federal government, again, as I say, without, with the exception of the president and, and vice president, some of their advisors, not including in this case, uh, Ms. Conway, from engaging in certain forms of political activities. Um, and so, again, uh, have people sort of walked up to the, um, to the edge of the Hatch Act before? Yes, they have. Has anybody or any administration um, so um, brazenly abused the Hatch Act? I don't think so. So taking this sort of test case forward with Kellyanne Conway, I think, makes sense. It'll be interesting to see what the outcome of it. But, you know, the, the, the recommendation that she be fired is not likely to be heeded by uh, the, um, the president. Even though, of course, the special counsel's office is now no longer, you know, act, headed by Mueller or acting in the right. capacity it was before. Yeah. Uh, next year, of course, is a presidential election. The Democratic field is uh, beginning to form up, and the race is beginning in earnest. Uh, interesting, and I, I'll, I'll put a caution out here because I, I, I feel like they're needed when you talk about polls. Uh, <laughs> polls sometimes prove to be fairly accurate or in the ballpark, and sometimes they're wildly inaccurate, and there's enough time between now and the actual election race that, that you can throw a pretty large grain of salt in all this. But well, anyway. if you look at the polls from last time, from from the 2016 cycle at this stage, I think in the Republican primary, which was had a hunt, lots and lots of people in it as well, yeah. if memory serves, Trump was, was polling at 1%. So yeah, we do yeah. have to take these with a serious grain of salt. Totally. Uh, but anyway, they found out that uh, basically Biden is the front runner, uh, Sanders coming in second, Warren in third, mm-hmm. uh, basically Trump losing to all to varying degrees. Uh, Biden worst of all, but uh, faring not so bad against Warren, for example, in third. Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you, I mean, again, large grain of salt here, but, uh, but what do you make of that? Well, lots of things. I mean, for starters, a lot of these polls are they're national polls, right? So, again, as you'll know, the the um, these presidential elections in a, in a highly kind of um, polarized country like the United States are increasingly um, turning on what certain sw- a smaller and smaller, by the way, number of swing states do, right? So it's more interesting to look at the um, numbers specifically as they apply in some of these key. Swing states, uh, some of the what you call the purple states, uh, you know, places like Florida, Ohio, uh, the Carolinas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's many of them, right? Michigan, which uh, Hillary Clinton failed to win, Wisconsin, which is a must win, Florida, all these uh, states. So looking at the numbers in these specific states rather than the overall numbers is going to be much more valuable because remember, it was looking at the overall numbers which led the media to conclude prematurely and the public to hope, uh, to believe that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And it turns out she had 5 million more votes than Donald Trump and won the popular vote, but in fact wasn't able to win the Electoral College because she wasn't able to win a sufficient number of states, right? So again, these kind of general numbers that we see coming out pay less attention to them than the numbers you see that are rather state-specific. Um, another reason that the run-up to the primary, to the uh, nomination this year is going to be significantly different than it has been in past years is because the California primary has been moved up on the calendar. And California is a very, very delegate-rich state. And typically, it was deciding very late in the game after things were, the momentum was already set in place by some of the early primary states, including some less populated states that had an outsized kind of influence on the process. So California, I think, quite wisely opted to have its... Um, its um, 
its primary earlier. And I know, for example, that, you know, uh, Kamala Harris, who was the attorney general of California, is now senator, or the junior senator for the state of California, is obviously banking a win in California. And one of the problems with her campaign is that she doesn't appear to be, she doesn't ha- she's not taking away, she doesn't appear to be in control of the state of California either. So although she's by most polls fourth after uh, Biden, Sanders, and uh, Warren, who's almost surging at this point and might surpass uh, Sanders. She's not yet, um, you know, completely put herself in that in that top three, if you will. But the top tier does include also Kamala Harris, and it, it includes perhaps surprisingly for some uh, Pete Buttigieg, the uh, mayor of South Bend, uh, Indiana, who came out of nowhere after a CNN town hall to impress uh, many Americans. So, um, you know, that's where things stand now. But underlying all of this, of course, is a really, really serious um, strategic and but also broader kind of um, political question that is unresolved in the Democratic Party. And that, that's a question that remains unresolved since 2016. And that is the division between the kind of center-left um, neoliberal consensus of the Democrats of the Clinton and Obama years versus an emerging a taste for and desire for a more um, social democratic um, ethos, which which really questions um, some of the basic assumptions of the sort of centrism of the Democrats of the 90s and the and the and the and the uh, 2000s so far, and which would sig- suggest a significant pivot leftward in American politics, not unlike the one that occurred under Roosevelt in the mid-century. So that is, and so some think that it would be an that it would be an unwinnable election were the candidate to be someone who was a a social a social democrat like uh, Sanders, uh, self-described, or even a very progressive, self-described capitalist uh, like Warren, and think the safest thing to do is to take somebody like Obama, I mean, somebody like Biden, who can be associated with Obama's legacy, or somebody like Kamala Harris, who's regarded as more of a centrist. But I think that's what was tried last time, right, with Hillary Clinton. And so some people make the argument, well, it's just Hillary Clinton's persona was so divisive, that's why she lost. But other people say, look, young people, people of color, progressives are a growing a constituency, and they stayed home for Hillary Clinton because they didn't view her as sufficiently progressive. So let's t- try something uh, different this time. I, and I tend to, um, I tend to uh, agree with that. And I think also it's important to recognize that you know if the American, if Democrats choose Joe Biden as their standard bearer, the message that they're sending is we're going to take you back to the day before Mr. Um, Trump was inaugurated. But that ignores the very compelling argument that the conditions under which it became possible for Mr. Trump to become president and for the electoral system even to be um, tampered with and subject to kind of um, right-wing populism uh, was uh, the failures and the sclerosis that were existed in the political system long before Mr. Trump came to power. So uh, I think we better hear out the left on this one. And I'm sort of hopeful in watching um, with great interest all of these candidates, many of whom are actually now sort of racing to the left to embrace a lot of the positions that uh, Bernie Sanders took uh, in 2016. And the the notable alternative in terms of how he's fundraising and in terms of the substantive politics uh, for all that is Joe Biden, who's relying on being the sort of mainstream candidate and hoping he can ride that uh, to the nomination. Yeah, I don't know. I don't see Biden as the the change guy. Although I I don't know, maybe he is the best shot to beat Trump. I don't know. But uh, well, you know, it depends how you view the elector. You know, I think it just depends how you view the electorate. It depends how you view the demographics. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's I think that politics, you know, it has been in both the Republican and Democratic Party 
in many ways risk averse. Both parties have tended toward nominating somebody who's centrist and, you know, palatable in a general election. <laughs> and that has generally been the strategy. And perhaps in some elections that works. But when you're running against a candidate like Donald Trump, it might not work because there's a lot of populist energy which can be captured on either the right or the left. And if there's no kind of populist um, energy or pitch um, coming from the Democratic Party, it risks, um, you know, not getting back. For example, those people who've po- who've been polled and said they voted for Obama and then switched and voted for Trump, yeah. or those people in 2018 who voted for the Democrats and wanted to change. Yeah. Now, well, interesting times, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Shane. We'll talk to you next week. Sounds good. And that was TRU lecturer and lawyer Jeffrey Myers discussing both Canadian and American politics. And that brings to an end this edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.